And, and by Unreal, I, I mean mostly because I just appreciate your transparency and authenticity to tell your story. And by Unreal, I mean the revelation that you shared with us about what you've learned over time, about what it looks like to walk with God and love him. Uh, it's really awesome, man. I, I, was, I was thinking of um, that scripture that talks about us overcoming by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And I just feel like when somebody tells their authentic testimony of overcoming, there's just this thing that enters the church, this power and this grace and this ability to be inspired. And I feel like your overcoming then becomes our ability to overcome. And so thank you. I love that God does that, but he only does that as we offer him up that kind of sacrifice. And so thank you for, for giving us that gift, man. That was awesome. Um, I wanted to see, uh, as he was sharing, I felt like there might have been somebody in here that felt like they wanted to share a piece of their testimony of how God has enabled them to overcome in their life. And so I just want to give a moment. If not, that's fine. I know it's probably scary if, if you're feeling like kind of nudged, but if the Holy Spirit was putting that on your heart and you want to come up and share with us your testimony, I'd love to make some space and just kind of agree with what he's doing. So I won't give us long, because it may be a little awkward while we sit here in silence. We'll give ourselves about 15 seconds here, but I would love if anybody feels compelled to just come up and share. This isn't about impressing people. This is about glorifying God with a testimony on your life. If while I'm speaking, you want to take me up on my offer, just come on up. We'll make space for it in the middle of whatever we're doing. All right, well, uh, I think Daniel blazed the way for us to, to talk about the passage uh, in a really, really great way. Um, and, uh, and so if you'll turn with, with me to Matthew chapter 26, we'll start in verse 14, and we'll get into it. We're going to talk about the Passover feast Today And this is a moment where Jesus talks to his disciples and addresses them in kind of a new way about the reality of his impending death, and that is the will of God, and that it is his choice to step into the unthinkable sacrifice for the sake of humanity, for the sake of his disciples. And this is where he kind of puts uh, a broader moment on it. You know, like throughout the book of Matthew, what we'll see is Jesus has these moments where he kind of stops with his disciples. It's almost like he's doing something else, and then he'll say, hey, and by the way, I'm going to die, <laughs> you know, like, hey, by the way, I'm going to give myself over to be crucified by the religious authorities, but he doesn't spend this kind of moment, he doesn't have this kind of heavy kind of moment with his disciples before this moment, and so uh, this, this feels like a turning point in his story where he is, he is only a, a few moments, uh, a day or so from the, from the cross. So let's dive into to verse 14 here, and then we'll unpack it together. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, if you were here last week, oh, actually the week before, you'll remember that we were talking about the famous, famous story that shows up in all four of the Gospels about the woman who lavishly loves Jesus by breaking in a very expensive bottle of 
ointment or perfume over his head in the middle of a dinner party, and in so doing, kind of like christens him for his, uh, for his burial. There's this extravagant moment where this woman just pours out her love, and it feels like she's so compelled by the authentic thing that Jesus has done into her life that she just wants to, she wants to express it somehow. It's like the love, it feels like in the story, the love is just like, I have to lavish my love on Jesus. And it feels like maybe this is the, the, the way she best knows how. She goes home and she's like, how do I do it? You know, and what does this look like? And she, she has this like $30,000, $40,000 bottle of perfume, which is kind of strange to me. You know, it's like really expensive, like a, a year's wages. And she goes and she breaks this thing and she just dumps it all over Jesus, this hugely extravagant moment of love. And all of the disciples are standing back and they're looking at this moment, not getting caught up in it. Oh, wow, what a beautiful expression of love not looking to Jesus' face to interpret the situation for them and say, like, how is Jesus responding to this? But making criticism towards her as to what a waste of money, what a foolish thing she's doing. She should have sold this and given it to the poor. Which, giving to the poor is a great way to love God. Um, And so I think the logical extension is probably like they've been walking with Jesus for three years. They've seen him love the poor. They're like, wow, like, you know, if they, if they really knew Jesus, they would have done this. You know, if she really knew Jesus, she would have sold this and given it to the poor. And Jesus rebukes them at that moment and says, the poor will always be with you, but I, I will not. And it's interesting to me that right coming out of this moment is when Judas decides ultimately to go to the chief priests and betray Jesus. This is the moment in the face of extravagant love from somebody who truly is moved by God. And then, and then that's the moment that Judas kind of walks out and decides, you know what, I've had enough here. Now you've got to think about this. Judas has been walking with Jesus as one of the twelve for three years. Now imagine walking with a group of twelve people all over this area, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles going through crazy stuff together. You know, like if you've ever been on a mission trip, you come back and you feel like you have this bond with the people. That's like a two-week mission trip. You come back, you're like, wow, we really went through it together, right? You know, we talked about our our bathroom stories together and how awful it was with our digestion. You know, like that's like, that's how you know you really made it as a missions team when you're like, oh, wow, like that was tough, you know. Um, All the people that are uncomfortable never have not gone on mission trips. All the people that are totally comfortable, like, yeah, totally. Um, but like you go through this together and then you have this bond with this people. This is three years every day together, pretty much, you know, going through amazing times where you see Jesus turn water into wine, going through really hard times where he says like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you're like, what? Like, what do I do with that? You know? Uh, good times, bad times, persecution, you know, like ups, downs, all that stuff. And he gets to the end, and after three years of living with Jesus like this, he chooses to betray him to death? Like, how does this happen? I mean, like, we know the story, so some of the craziness of it wears off, but imagine that. Imagine that. Like, what compels somebody after three years of walking with somebody who's perfect, to go and turn them over to the authorities. 
But this is the moment where he decides, and then we, we read this. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus had recline, was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. What a terrible moment for Judas, right? Like he's got it in his heart to do it. They're having this intimate moment where they're reclining at the table. It's just them. And he just calls it out. I mean, have you ever gotten called out for something you've done wrong and you like your body just turns all hot and like I turn really red? You know, maybe you don't, but I do. This would be an awful moment. Um, they were very sad. The disciples become very sad. You can feel the moment kind of shift in the room and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Like, think of this moment again, 12 guys that have walked around so much love, but there's something in them that they have enough humility, at least in this moment, to recognize that it might be possible, right? Like, they go around the, world, the, the room, and it's like, Jesus, surely you don't mean me. Like, I feel, I feel like I really love you, but could this be me? Like, is this going to be me? Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is, just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, says, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my body of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This part at the, the end, I'm not going to go deep into it, but for some reason it really gets me this time through, the, through the, the passage. After they go through all of this, like this is an intense moment, right? Someone's going to betray. Jesus is talking about how his body is broken for them. He's talking about his impending death. This is like a huge moment for them. And there's like a, a mood there that they're, they're, they're doing this very like heavy, kind of, you know, like very uh, intense moment. And then at the end it says they sung a hymn and they leave out there and they go to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is the place that Jesus would ultimately be, be betrayed. But there's this power of them singing a hymn, I feel like, as the cap moment to this. I don't know why it gets me this time around, but I feel like it's just like this really powerful thing where they talk about the will of God is to have the Son of God die and that one of the brothers amongst them will betray them, and then they sing a hymn, and then they go on to that place. 
The, the thing I first want to talk about is the significance of this event, and then I want to talk to us a little bit kind of about what I felt like God was putting on my heart specifically for us. So the first thing that we need to notice is that this is a Passover event. The Passover is one of the most major moments in Israel's history. It, it was uh, a remembrance feast where they come together every year at the same time of the year and they celebrate this moment where Israel was under brutal slavery to the Egyptians. Just brutal, brutal slavery. I mean, the Egyptians were pushing them and working them to the bone and the captivity was, was really horrific. And this is the moment that God came in and released them from bondage and set them out to be a people uh, unto their own again. And so every year what they do is they celebrate by slaughtering a Passover lamb, a spotless lamb. And that spotless lamb um, represents the salvation of God. It represents that when you call upon the Lord, the salvation of the Lord comes in a way that releases you from bondage. And you're free to go out, uh, in this case, into the desert onto a journey, but to the, towards the ultimate destination of a promised land that God had for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a, man of, a land of abundance. And so what you see here is the ultimate will of the Lord is that his people would be in a land flowing with milk and honey. You see the will of the Lord that salvation, what it means to him, is released from bondage, set out from that bondage, going towards a journey, going through the wilderness, and ultimately it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And so every year they celebrate this and it's this joyous event where they're like, yes, we need to remember that our God is a God that when you call upon him, when you call upon the name of the Lord, no matter what situation that you are in, there is freedom. There's freedom from that thing, right? And I think Daniel's testimony was exactly this thing. You're in captivity, deep bondage, and you call upon the, way, the name of the Lord and he releases you from that thing. So this is moment where they reflect on Israel's history as to what Passover was. And then Jesus comes in and he kind of redefines Passover for them. And what he's teaching them in this moment is that he's the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover moment. He's the ultimate fulfillment of what Passover represented. That he is the release from sin and bondage and that we all started in the same place where we were living in a place of captivity to our own sin and we have no chance of getting out of it. And then as we call upon the name of the Lord, he provides freedom. Now, I think we talk about this so much that it can kind of get flat in a way. But the crazy thing is, is when you read the Bible, it's kind of the same story over and over again. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but as you read the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament, but especially the Old Testament, it's like the people of God, they're under his rule and they thrive and they're doing well. And then they turn into idiots and they go their own way and they turn away from God and they end up in captivity and they end up under bondage and it gets so bad that finally they say, oh Lord, where are you? We need you, we need you. And he goes, oh, thank God. Thank, thank God, that's weird. He goes, oh, thank me. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm thankful. They finally recognize their need for a savior. Now I can swoop in and I can help them. Isn't it interesting that God waits for the people of God to swoop in as the Savior? Isn't it interesting that he'll kind of like help in the background, but for the big moments where he brings the salvation, it's because the people of God repent, they come to him, they confess what's going on with them, and they invite him into the situation, and then he comes? Have you ever thought about why that's the case? 
Like, why doesn't God just, like, come in and help in those types of ways before and after the confession moment or before and after the moment where we come to him and we call upon the name of the Lord? There's this really interesting thing that, that, that plays out in this, which is this. If God brought the help before we had the recognition of sin and our desperation for him, then we would never know that it was him. We'd actually end up in a place that was worse off than when we started because all of this stuff going on down here, all of the stuff that happens with sin, all of the, the hurt and the pain and the, and the trials of life, all of that stuff is used by the Lord to draw us in to true life, which is found in the revelation that he is our creator and we are his creation and that we're supposed to be doing this thing. That's what all of this, that's what this whole thing is about. In fact, when it talks about the bowl that they're dripping their bed, dipping their bread in in the Passover feast, it was a bowl of bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs were there to represent the bitterness of life. You know, I think especially in this church, if you've been here for a while, we talk a lot about the triumphant Christian life. We talk about the life where when you are really walking with Jesus and when he's really your savior and when you really have his love throwing, flowing through you and you really have his power flowing through you, that there's this place in life where you can kind of transcend and you're flying at a different altitude and you kind of overcome in a way where sometimes it can feel like, you know, nothing can touch me. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sail through this thing with great joy. And what I want to say is, I think in this passage, what we see is that there's an aspect of that that is absolutely yes. There's an aspect of that that that's exactly what we're celebrating in the Passover feast, which is the release from true bondage. They leave Israel, not only just to go to the land of flowing with milk and honey, but they leave with crazy riches from Egypt. Like, if you remember the story, they actually plunder Egypt before they go, and they're like, pockets are loaded with gold and silver, and they're like going out into the desert for this 40-year journey with all of this worthless metal, right? Like, like what are you going to do with it out there, right? But they totally plunder Egypt. And so there is this aspect of like, not always in the monetary sense, but there's this aspect of like abundance in the Christian life. You know, Jesus talks about like, if you walk with me, you're going to live in abundance. Like, I want to have fullness of joy exist in you. That is so true. But the thing that I was struck with this week as I read this story and I was, I was reflecting on the Passover is, dude, this life, there's an aspect of it that this life is bitter herbs. And I think that there's something really healthy for us to understand that we're, we're just not there yet. You know, like one of the most powerful moments in this, in this story, and it's really highlighted, is this moment where Jesus, he breaks the bread, he drinks the wine. He's talking about his body and his blood broken for his disciples. And then he says, I'm not going to do this again until we do this in the fullness of my Father's kingdom together. He, he talks about him abstaining from drinking the fruit of the vine, this this abstaining until this fullness moment happens. And I think understanding the place in history that we are that, gosh, things aren't as they should be. And in our relationships, like 
things kind of aren't as they should be. And in our relationship with God, like things aren't as they should be. And as we interact with the church, things aren't as they should be. You know, like, Jesus is in a moment here where he's going to the cross and one of the most beloved people, the one who is dipping the bread with him in the same bowl, such an intimate moment, is the one who betrays him. He's sitting amongst a group of people that as he leaves from this place, they scatter when they find out that, the, that he's going to the cross and that there'll be tremendous persecution. He's in a world where he has left heaven, come to the people that he's created to lay down his life for salvation, and his creation kills him. Like, there's so many things in this story that scream things are not as they should be. And I think the thing that, that struck me even with Jesus setting this up of like, hey, you're going to continue to celebrate this thing that I'm going to be abstaining for because I'm going to be sitting in the fullness of my Father's kingdom. You're going to still be going through it. And so there's a remembrance aspect that, that is really good and, and important for you to have every year as you remember my body and my blood. He's abstaining because he's waiting. He's abstaining because he's eagerly waiting the fullness of the kingdom to come. Why is he doing that? Because it's not here and because it's kind, there's aspects of it that's just like, it's kind of brutal right now. And if you know me well enough at all, you'll know that this is not generally kind of like my worldview. This is not generally how I live life. But the thing that I've been noticing lately is like, dude, there's not a lot of freebies in this world. I was, I was talking with somebody this week and we were talking about this, this thing in the ark where we've been talking a lot about family and how man, is the church, can we like really love one another? Can we really do this thing where we're not just doing a thing on Sunday and coming and worshiping, but like, what does it look like for us to really be doing this midweek and truly sacrificing for one another and making ourselves available to one another? And I've been telling all these stories about all these times where people do that in these profound and awesome ways. And I love those. And then I also realized that like, we're so far from the fullness of what that looks like that if we're looking for it, it would be really easy to look at our church or our core group of friends or our pastor or, I mean, fill in the blank and identify how far we are from the fullness. The reason, the reason why I have this kind of like, this is what I feel like the Lord put on our heart for us today is because I think if we're going to do this life well, and I think if we're going to do church life well, and if I think we're going to do marriage well and friendship well, there almost has to be this starting point that is like, not all the way in this direction. So just like go with me. But there's an aspect of it that we just like don't expect that much. Don't go all the way there, <laughs> right? Because love believes all things. And there's an aspect where, like, I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there why it's not all the way there. But a starting point for us is kind of a place of humility, which is like, hey, friends, like, I am probably, almost surely, going to fail you at some point as we do life together. You know, like, in a marriage, it's like, we say these grand vows that are, like, super awesome, which is like, I'm going to love you perfectly forever and ever, <laughs> you know, when you're at the altar. But man, when it comes down to like really the day-to-day -day and like laying down your life every day, you realize how difficult it is and you realize how imperfect 
marriages for a long time. And the same thing's true with friendships, right? You get into a friendship and you're like, man, this, perf- this person hurts me. Like, the person that's supposed to, in my life, be the one that loves me so well, hurts me. Consistently. And I think if we don't have the starting point that I was just talking about, what we'll do is we'll think that something's always wrong in the ultimate sense, in the ultimate sense with our marriage. Or we'll think that something's wrong in the ultimate sense with every pastor that we have. Or we'll think that something's wrong in the ultimate sense with every church that we go to or every worship event that we go to or every prayer service. I mean, everything. And I think that, like, it's a really healthy starting point to just say, in the ultimate sense, things are going to be incredibly far from perfect as we do this life together. And that's what we're signing up for. In John chapter 2, there's this interesting passage where Jesus has just turned water into the wine. It's his first miracle. He starts to get this fame. And it says, paraphrased this, but Jesus did not trust himself to anyone because he knew what was in them. There's like... Jesus knew the frailty of the 12 that he was selecting. Jesus knew the frailty of humanity that one day they'd be really hot for him and the next day they'd be ice cold for him. And so in the ultimate sense, he didn't entrust himself to anyone on earth because he knew what was in us. Now, this is an interesting thing because this is three years later where we see how Jesus interacted with his 12. So knowing all that is the background, knowing what's in them, he's having a moment with Judas, who's the one that's going to betray him to death, where he's sitting at a Passover table, having the most intimate moment that you could ever imagine. And we know that part of this is he gets up from the table and he does the job of a servant to extravagantly love the 12 that are sitting in front of him. In, 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 in the book of John, it talks about how he got up from the table and he loved them to the very end. I love that line. He loved them to the very end. He took this moment where he's like, do you understand what I'm doing right now? And he washes their feet. He becomes the servant to them. But with this backdrop, he knows exactly not only what's going on with Judas, but he knows exactly what's in, in, the, in the other 11 as well. One betrays him in a crazy sense and the other betray him in that they scatter, you know, like birds when when things get hard. But it doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change who he is to them. And so I think the thing that's like scary when when we state this thing first, which is like, do we understand the frailty of humanity and that nothing is going to be perfect until we get to that place? The scary part about making that statement and why it feels like such a downer is because it feels like the natural outcropping of that statement is, okay, you can't trust anyone. You need to keep your distance from people. You need to guard your heart as if it's, you know, your life dependent on it. Don't open it up to anybody because nobody's really trustworthy. You know, it's all of these conclusions that I think we go to when the starting point is, man, things are messed up here. None of us are perfect. 
things are going to be really tough. And so we immediately start to kind of like get into the defensive posture. And I think one of the craziest things about Jesus' model is not that he denies the fact that things are so tough or that things are imperfect or that his disciples are scared or that, you know, like all of this, that he's going to be betrayed, but that it doesn't change his behavior. It doesn't change the way that he shows up. And I think that that's just like, that's amazing. It's amazing that Jesus has Judas at the table while he's doing this intimate moment with his disciples. That he washes his feet before he goes to betray him. Like, that's our savior. That's the one that we are to model our life after. And so I think it's just kind of like, I feel like this is such a perfect story to kind of just step back and say, the, the, the life that we've signed up for is that there are no perfect churches, but we love it as if it's a perfect church. That there are no perfect friends, but we choose to, in the power of God, love our friends as if they were perfect. You know, like, when we're the one that's been wronged, that we choose to erase that moment for, through forgiveness. Like, that's hard. You know, like, the, the call of discipleship with Jesus is that we become like him. But becoming like him means walking like him. And walking like him probably requires some training. And requiring some training probably means we need to walk through this world in a way where we may get kind of beaten up a lot. That we don't just skate through life, that we find out who he truly is by getting a little marked up by the community that's supposed to be loving us or by doing our best to follow God and realizing, wow, I'm still so far from the mark. But having faith in his supernatural love that still comes in in those moments and we choose back into relationship, sometimes that's the hardest side of the equation where you have totally failed and you have to take the step in of trusting that that other person's forgiveness and love is enough. All of this, somehow in God's ways, is perfect training ground to make us like Christ. To make us people that don't need to be loved in order to love. To make us people that can be betrayed but then love our enemies. To be people that can submit under really flawed leadership. On and on and on. Church, like, I feel like this is a starting point. The reason why this is such a good starting point is because I feel like it's the starting point to real fight and endurance. What happens when you, you think that when something goes wrong, that something's wrong in the ultimate sense is you start to question whether this gospel that you're believing is really true or you start to question whether your discipleship is really true, right? Like, whether, you, whether you're in the wrong church because there's broken people or you have the wrong friends because they're not loving you as well as they should. And, and you know, like, there's another side of this. Like, the extre- like, if you're in an abusive relationship, you get out of, you know, like, yes. Okay, full stop, yes. This isn't just you're a doormat for the rest of your life. But there's a grit and an endurance that this puts in us as we realize what we've signed up for in discipleship. 
which is that there's this time in history that's not now where the fullness will come and it will be glorious and wonderful and Christ's rule will be perfect and, and everybody will be in submission and the government, will, you know, his government, whatever that looks like, will be perfect and community will perfect, all that stuff. We're not there. And so this, require, this life is a lot about grit and endurance and learning how to fight and to make it through and to choose love when it's super hard and to choose to forgive when there's really no earthly reason to and to truly become like Christ. There's this crazy part of James in James chapter one where it says, rejoice when you receive trials of many kind. Explode with joy, like rejoice. Enter into a place of actively being joyful is what the, re- the word rejoice means. Like choose into a place where you're actively joyful when you re- receive trials of many kinds. Why? Because the trials are from God? No. No. It doesn't say the trials are from God. But what it says is that God will use that trial for something that is beyond value. And so the reason why you rejoice in the trial is because you understand who God is and that he can take any situation and he can twist it around and he can do something like create Christ in you through the sins of other people. Only God can do that. That we can have a rejoicing attitude when we go through this life and we're facing trials of many kinds because of the sins of people like Judas and the sins of the people like the other 11 and the sins of people like you and I, that there's a rejoicing and a triumphing that can come through that because as you go through that, what happens is those tests of faith produce endurance and that endurance produces completion in Christ. That the ultimate prize of our life is to be conformed perfectly into his likeness. And so as we do that, we go and we get fired from our job and we're like, whoa, that's so terrible. This is a crisis of faith moment. We go into a friendship and the person like rips our heart out and guess what? That person was an elder in the church or something like that. Oh, and I thought they were a Christian. It's like, what kind of, do we know what's in us when we make statements like that? Do we realize that we're just like the 11 hopefully not like the other one, but we're just like the 11 where we can't be trusted either. Jesus wouldn't put his trust in us either in in the sense that it it talked about in John chapter 2. And so when we do that, it, it it screams to us, my expectation of you is far beyond what I would contend is real... Let's hope for it, but let's not expect it. Let's keep our hope alive for it for our friends. Let's believe in it in the love sense, but let's not also be so shocked and appalled when we fail each other. How could could you do this? You say you're a Christian. It's like, yeah, I'm kind of messed up too. Like I'm not there. And so what I wanted to like highlight for us as we read this story is we need to remind ourselves of the time that we live in, not so that we get up, give up and separate from one another, but so that we're not shocked when we're required to operate in an extreme amount of love 
in order to walk in God's will. Like, being a disciple of Jesus will mean for sure that you get super wronged, people fail you and disappoint you, and what he's building in you as a disciple of Jesus is the ability to love anyway, to overcome anyway, to have rock-solid faith in God's goodness over your life anyway. The trial of faith is a test of faith. It's a pushing against your faith. Can it withstand the thing that it's coming up against? And so, like, that's going to be a part of our lives. How is that going to happen? I'm not sure. But a part of our Christian life is going to be these moments where something hits us and we're like, this one's hard to believe. This one's hard to get to the other side of being like, I'm instantly rejoicing. And I think we can't be, it, should, it, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make what Judas did right. In fact, in the story, Jesus says, Judas, it would be better if you were never born that you chose to do this. There's ultimate accountability for the person's actions. So it's not like in this we're just saying like, oh, I'm so messed up, I shredded your heart, but like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm just a work in progress. You know, like, that's not where we're going. It's like, you know, you're awful to your best friend again, and it's like, oh, but, you know, you need to forgive me, and there's, that's not, that's not it. There's ultimate, there's accountability for Judas's actions here. But there's also a sense that you can tell that Jesus isn't rocked even in that Judas's actions will be the thing that leads to his crucifixion. But Jesus doesn't spin out of control and go, oh my gosh, my destiny is ruined because Judas is sin. Right? Jesus isn't victim to the sin of Judas. He's not victim to the failures of his disciples and he's not in a crisis moment where he's like, oh, I knew I should have never come. You know? <laughs> this whole thing, I was a long shot, but I knew it would fail. There's this stability about Jesus where he stands back and he goes, no, this is the will of the Lord. This is the will of the Lord. But at the same time, there's ultimate accountability for, Je for Judas. It's not that we say it's right, but it also shouldn't come as the biggest shock in history when things aren't as they should be. And our ability to step in in those moments and get to the place of, and say, the will of the Lord is going to be stronger in my life than whatever sin is choosing to express, is coming at me right now. That's the moment where the test of faith turns into the victory, where, where your, your faith moves beyond. And then as you get there, what's awesome is that place enables you to love in any situation. And so that is so much the name of the game. How do we get into a place where this is a part of life, we're used to trials, we're used to tribulations, we know it means stepping back in, doing the hard work with the Lord, and getting to the place where the sins of others don't change us. That we are who we are because there's a flow of God that's coming through us, and we're not responding to all the stuff that's coming at us. That's discipleship. And the how in that is to understand 
that we're never a victim to any sin that comes at us, which doesn't mean that there's not any real loss. There was real loss for Jesus here, right? It doesn't mean that there's not real loss. People can do some stupid stuff and it can really hurt you and it can really take from you. But in the ultimate sense, there's a full overcoming in that at the end of time, there's a moment where Jesus makes all things right and you will be rewarded for every moment that somebody sinned against you and you chose to love, you chose to forgive, you chose to trust him, you chose to overcome. And that reward will be more valuable than anything that you gave up down here. Anything. Anything, anything. That's the cornerstone to how we live. Jesus could march towards the cross because he knew he saw the joy that was set before him. He knew he saw the joy of the other side of that cross. And so there's an anchoring spot in eternity. When we say there's no real loss What it really means is that there's no way that you're going to get into heaven and there's going to be a reward given for something that you overcame and you're going to be like, oh, this wasn't worth it. Like, I totally would have taken the thing that like, you know, definitely taken that offering that I gave. Could have gone to Cabo, you know, whatever it is. And so that's in the ultimate sense. And then in this earthly sense, the victory that we experience is Romans 8, 28, which is God has committed to us that as we trust him with our life and we love him, that he will turn everything into good. That is an insane promise from an almighty God. Like, as we experience things, things come our way, and he takes it, you can just see him in the background moving things and turning them around and moving your heart and changing this over here to the point where you get to the end and you go, oh, good. Like, somehow that turned into good. Along the way, while I struggled and I fight and I chose in and I chose to love and I chose to forgive and I chose to do what you were choosing, all of that, like, as I was doing this, God's in the background moving things around shaping things, doing things in your heart, and at the end of it, you always look back. His promise is that you always look back, and at the situations you went through, you never look back and say, oh, that, that situation was bigger than God's ability to, to, to bring something forth from it. That's off limits. That's crazy. That's amazing. That's what it looks like to have faith in God. And so there's a triumphant posture to life where even when you're in it and you're feeling it and you're feeling the sting and the hurt of the life, you can still say that, well, if it's, if it's not good yet, then he's not done. I want to say that one of our core values in this church, which I totally love, is that we get to live in this posture towards life that in God, there's kind of like nothing that we can't overcome. I don't want to ever lose that. I love that empowered, bold, never a victim sense of this life. But what I want to do today is I want to fill in around that, which is, it ain't easy. Like, something is not ultimately wrong with your discipleship 
if you don't have perfect faith all the time. If it's hard to, to walk out obedience, if it's hard to trust God in some area. We're not there yet. Something is not wrong with your core friendships if you regularly feel like they fail you in the ultimate sense. It just means that you're not experiencing the pinnacle, which we will in eternity, but it just reveals the gap. Something is not wrong in the ultimate sense with your church life or whatever, fill in, fill in the blank. And that is a really, really healthy grounding starting point because instead of saying, this thing's wrong, I'm going to chuck it and I'm going to bail and I'm going to go find a different one, what you say is, this thing's wrong, which is exactly why it requires me to be a disciple of Jesus in this moment and to step in and to overcome and to choose his grace and to choose his love and to choose to forgive and to choose to have the conversation that I don't want to have and whatever. It's a fuller picture of a principle that we've talked about for a long time. And, I, and I've just gotten the sense that a lot of the people in this church are going through transition seasons right now. It feels like everybody I talk to right now is going through some sort of transition. And I probably haven't called it out because I feel like any charismatic church that you go to, you'll get a prophetic word like, you're in a state of transition. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the default word. You know, I just feel like God's really teaching you that he loves you more these days and it's like coming alive and you're probably in transition and like, you know. I really feel like a lot of us are going through, I know that a lot of us are going through transition because this life is filled with transitions. But I also felt prophetically like this was a moment where there's transitions and I can guarantee you that in any transition and anything that's going on, it ain't gonna be smooth and it ain't gonna be perfect. And I can guarantee you in any transition and anything that you're going through, it's going to require you to be a disciple of Jesus. It's going to require you to stay close to him. It's going to require you to stay tight to the vine. And when it requires you to hug on to that vine for every sap of life that God can give you, that just means that you're walking through this life. So before we head out of this place, let's sing a hymn. <laughs> After a heavy moment together, I would love to invite Steve and the worship team to come up. And I'd also love to uh, invite you to get some prayer ministry. You know, I love prayer ministry because at any time in my life, I feel like I need prayer ministry. I don't know that there is a time in my life where I don't feel like I needed prayer ministry. Um, and I feel like, you know, even as I say that, I think when, you know, like this last season of my life personally, I felt like I've had to really camp out in John 15. And John 15 is the whole thing, like, abide in the vine. You can't do anything without me. Like, don't, you have no, zero fruit if you're not abiding in the vine. I feel like I've been just camping in that lately. And I, and I feel like usually it feels like something wrong in life when that's your posture. I'd like to contend with you that I think that something's right in life when that's your posture. It's probably that you're refusing to create space in your relationships because you're choosing to be a disciple. Or it's probably because God is testing your faith and you're choosing faith. Right? Those moments where you're hugging the vine and, Jesus, I need prayer ministry, or, oh man, I better get my quiet time today because I totally need it. 
I would say that it's probably an indication that something's right, not something's wrong. And so let's just stand together. Let's worship God. And if you need prayer ministry, join the club. I do too. Let's get some prayer ministry. But I'll pray for us as we transition. Jesus, we thank you for the model that you are to us. God, that discipleship is following following who you are. It's, it's becoming like you. It's, it's when we see something in somebody else and we go, wow, that's amazing. It's becoming that. It's becoming the, the type of person that can overcome when the sin and the pains of this world come close to us, God. And I just thank you, God, that you don't, you don't say that everything's going to be perfect and in that sense that, that when we experience something that's wrong, that we're supposed to question what this life is. It, that should just confirm to us why we need you so much and why you've provided us with your spirit and why you've empowered us in our innermost beings and why you've called us to walk like Jesus, God. We just thank you for that, God. And we just say again, as we anchor ourselves in like what this life is supposed to feel like and how we overcome, God, that, that we just say, God, that we're living in a time where everything is not going to be just as it should be. But God, that you are triumphant even in those moments. That your grace is enough. Your closeness is enough. God, that you enable us to overcome even in those Judas moments when people hurt us and disappoint us, God. And I thank you for that. And God, what I ask over this church is that you would put a fire and a grit and an endurance and a perseverance and a steadfastness and a long-suffering and, a, and, a, and a, a group of people that are truly planted on the rock, God. Would you make us victorious overcomers, God? as we go through life and experience the training ground that produces warriors that know how to fight, warriors that know how to overcome, just like you did, Jesus. And so we thank you for it, God, and we worship your great name now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to come up for some prayer, come on forward.